And speaking of transitions, here we are at the first Sunday of Lent. Can you believe it? How many of you were aware that last Wednesday was Ash Wednesday? Okay, so most of you. Anybody get ashes? No, okay. You're thinking maybe next year we'll, we'll do ashes. I mean, well, it's, a, it's a good, solid reminder of things, you know. And um, so beginning of Lent, first Sunday of Lent, I've always had this fascination with the liturgical calendar. And it's interesting. Well, I say I always have. I, that's not exactly true. In the last couple of decades, I've had a fascination with the liturgical calendar. Even though I grew up in it as a Catholic, it was never explained to me. It never explained how it works. We just showed up and did what they told us to do, you know. But the calendar is, in case you're wondering what a liturgical calendar is, it's the yearly cycle of the ritual practices, observances that, um, that a church does. Um, the Jews have their liturgical calendar. It's either one to three years. Uh, the Western Christian Church, especially the Roman Catholic Church, has a liturgical calendar that's a one-year cycle. And uh, many of the high Protestant denominations have carried that through. Of course, the Eastern Orthodox carries that through. But it is a, it's a really kind of an interesting and wonderful thing, even though we don't practice it uh, here uh, and especially in old times, uh, in, in the Middle Ages in Western Europe, it was the liturgical calendar married with the cultural practices that happened at each one of those liturgical seasons that you can imagine how it brought the community together in shared experience, really rooted them and connected them. And, and one of the things that I like to do when we enter a new liturgical season is to talk a little bit about it. In case you don't know, the liturgical calendar starts on December 1st with Advent. So there's, there's basically just two seasons within the liturgical calendar. One centers around Christmas and the other centers around Easter. And everything in between those two seasons is just called ordinary time. You know, may you live in ordinary time. Um, but at any rate, uh, from December 1st to December 24th, the Christmas Eve, is Advent. And it contains four Sundays. And it's a preparation for Christmas. Christmas tide, uh, it used to be called back in the old days, is 12 days, and it goes from December 25th to January 5th. All right, so you got 12 days. 12 days of Christmas, it ends on Epiphany Eve or 12th night, and then Epiphany tide takes over, and that's a feast of Epiphany on, on February 6th, and it goes all the way to, um, what is it, uh, March 2nd, I believe. Um, which is the feast of the presentation when Jesus was presented in the temple. And if you add Christmas tide together, the 12 days of Christmas to the 28 days of Epiphany tide, you have that magic number 40 again, don't you? There's, the, the Bible is filled with 40s. And 40, as you know, always means a time of trial and testing into a rebirth into a transition into rebirth, into new life. And so you see those 40s in the Bible over and over. You see them in the liturgy over and over. So once Epiphany Tide is over, you enter into Ordinary Time. So we've been in Ordinary Time up until last Wednesday when we started Lent. Lent is another 40-day period that goes from Ash Wednesday to Holy Saturday. And then we have Easter, of course, on the next day. Easter Tide goes from Easter until Pentecost. So there's 50 days between Easter and Pentecost. And then you've got a long stretch of Ordinary Time before you hit Advent again. In some churches, Holy Week is broken out as a separate um, season of the liturgy as well. But you kind of see how this all fits together. And you see the numbers, how the numbers are working in there too. Symbolic numbers and how that happens. Have you ever wondered why we don't have a date for Easter? 
Like Easter's always moving around. Have you ever wondered that? No? You don't care? Well, I'm going to tell you anyway. Because I think it's really cool. Since Jesus' resurrection happened um, biblically within Passover, uh, the the Feast of Pesach, which is a seven-day feast, the church tied Easter to Passover. Passover is tied to the lunar calendar that the Jews observed uh, in ancient times and still observe now, uh, in at least ecclesiastically, with uh, you know very conservative or Hasidic Jews are still looking at the liturgical calendar for their feast days. And uh, in a lunar month is 29 and a half days. So you either got 29 days or you got 30 days in your month, and it bounces back and forth to try to keep it a little bit even. But here's the cool thing. In ancient times, they didn't know when their month was going to start until they sighted the first crescent moon, the first sliver, what, what our, our, our sunshine used to call a finger-cut moon, when you just saw that little sliver of the crescent. That's how they knew that the next month was starting. It wasn't on a calendar. It wasn't written down someplace. It wasn't mathematical. It was based on astronomical observation. And even cooler is, is that as soon as a witness, someone outside of Jerusalem, saw that first sliver of a crescent, they would run to the temple and tell the temple authorities. The temple authorities would sanctify or authorize that this, yes, was the first day of the next month. And then they had to get the word out to all the Jews because it was very important for all the Jews to be following the right feast days on the right days. Because if you had a Sabbath, for instance, if you have something like Pesach, which always starts on the 15th of Nisan, which is a Jewish month uh, during the springtime, that first day and the last day, the seventh day, are what are called Yom Tov, which literally means good day, but it was treated like a Sabbath, so you couldn't do any work, just like you could on the Sabbath. So if you were going to keep the law and not break it, you needed to know when that first day was and when that seventh day was. Well, they used to do it with signal fires. That's how they would go from the Temple of Jerusalem to all of Judaism in the Levant, you know, in the Middle Eastern area, and into Babylon, where there were still Jews living from, from the you know, exile 400 years before or whatever. But they used signal fires, kind of like Lord of the Rings. You remember that great scene of Lord of the Rings? It was like that, light the fire. So you could get speed of light transmission out throughout, and everybody could know within a day that this was a start. Well, guess what happened? We had the first hacking into the system and the implanting of a virus when the Samaritans were just a mess with the Jews' heads would light false signal fires. And then everybody would, and then they were getting all off and everybody's getting messed up. So then they had to send out messengers. Well, the messengers are more secure. You can't really hack into them. But they're slow. Now, within Judaism, you could get a messenger to every part of, of, I should say, Judea and the Galilee within two weeks or so, but you couldn't get to Babylon that fast. So Babylon, the Jews there, never really knew when was the official start of the day. So what they did was add a second Yom Tov. So the first two days of Passover were Yom Tov. That way they would make sure that they were keeping the Sabbath whatever day it felt. Then they had to add an extra day on the end. (laughs) I know it's getting crazy, huh? But this is how seriously they took it. This is why some Jews have eight days of Passover and some still have seven because some are following the Babylonian tradition and some are following the Judean tradition. And this is way more than you ever wanted to know. But bear with the geek in, in the midst. What the, what the church did was to tie Easter to Passover. So 
Passover starts on the first full moon after the spring equinox, which now is set at March 21st. So the first full moon after that is considered the first day of Passover. What the church did was say then, Easter is going to be the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. And so that's why it's always moving, because it's based on astronomy. Now, in the modern world, we don't base it on observation anymore, except for those ultra-Orthodox Jews. Now it's all mathematically calculated, but that's why it still is moving all over the place, because it's still tied to that lunar calendar. So, now you want to get where Lent is going to start. You start at Easter, which is now that first Sunday after the first full moon, right? And you count 50 days forward, and you got Pesach. I'm sorry, you got Shavuot, which for us is Pentecost. You count back 40 days, and you get Ash Wednesday, at least after the 7th century when Pope Gregory put it on Wednesday. But if you really count back from Ash Wednesday to Easter, you actually get 46 days because they don't count any of the Sundays. There are six Sundays in Lent. Those are not fast days. So if you're going to fast during Lent, guess what? You get Sundays off. It's 40 days not counting the Sundays. So everything is tied to Easter, which is tied to the full moon, which is tied to the spring equinox. It's, It's very organic. It's, it's kind of really beautiful and cool if you think about that. And I'm probably the only one that's excited about this, but I'm telling you, it's, it's really cool. Why do we call it Lent? What I'm trying to do this morning is to give us just a little more depth to what it is that we're doing, because I'm hoping that this season of Lent will become meaningful for you personally as we're preparing for Easter, for, for new life and resurrection. The word Lent comes from the old English word Lincoln which simply means springtime. You know, it's just the season of spring. And so they took that word and they dropped it on because this preparation time, this 40-day preparation for for Easter always falls in the spring. And uh, this was all established by the mid-2nd century, so this is really ancient stuff. Traditionally, Lent was understood as a time of penance. It was a time of remorse. It was a time of... uh, confessing your sins, looking for new areas of growth. It's kind of like a liturgical fourth step, if you will. It's looking at all the problems that you have and the things that you bring to the table, the things that need work on. And so because of that, the Tuesday before Ash Wednesday, where the fast actually begins, was called Shrove Tuesday. And the word shrive means confession. The word shrive means to absolve, to hear the confession, and to assign penance. And so from a thousand years ago, you had Shrive Tuesday, which was also understood as the last day that you could eat up before you had to go into the fast, right? So it also became known as Mardi Gras, which means Fat Tuesday. And it was the day that you had to eat all of your fatty foods. So between 11 and 12 o'clock in the morning on Shrive Shrove Tuesday, the church bells would ring. And that was a call to confession. And you needed to go to the church. You needed to uh, hear your confession. And then you had to come back and you had to make sure that you used up all your milk and your eggs and your butter because all of that was verboten uh, during the fast, right? During the Lenten fast. Well, if you have a bunch of eggs and milk and butter, what are you going to make to get rid of all that stuff and have a nice feast? Think about it. It became known as Pancake Day. 
because they would make pancakes of all of that stuff. And it's really kind of interesting, the symbolism there. There was, there was the understood traditionally in, in Western Europe as the four pillars of Christianity was creation, sustenance, wholesomeness, and purity. And so each one of those elements of the pancakes, the eggs were connected with creation, right? Procreation. Flour with sustenance. Salt with wholesomeness. And milk with purity. So they had these extra layers of symbolism on the foods they were eating. Yeah. Fasnat day, donut day, and that's in what Western Pennsylvania or Eastern, Eastern Pennsylvania. That, that's perfect. That's the same kind of thing. So we're seeing that culture even into our time, especially among some of those closed communities like the Amish and Mennonites and others. So a lot of these things have been carried through. We've lost all these traditions, but they're still there if you really think about it. And so Fat Tuesday, Shrove Tuesday, last day to gorge. In many cultures, especially in England, uh, since 1445, I think, they had pancake races where they start with a, an egg in, 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 the, in the pan and they've got to run from the church to some other location without breaking the eggs or flipping the pancakes as they go. That's right, they're flipping the pancakes as they go. And they're, it's, it's, but it's great fun, you know? It, it's just this joyful time. Again, when you think about the way the culture marries with the liturgical calendar to create these cultural events that drew all the people together in this common experience, this bonding that happens... You know, we've lost all that. We don't have that connection in our culture anymore. Sort of the last one standing in the liturgical calendar was Christmas, but look what's happened in the last, you know, five, ten years with Christmas. You know, in, in many uh, areas, you can't even say Merry Christmas. You've got to say Happy Holidays. And so that breakdown within our culture of having this shared experience is, is getting lost. It's not to say that the other traditions aren't beautiful, but what really binds us together as a people, we don't have the same kind of common thread. So after Shrove Tuesday, you got Ash Wednesday. Now, when the when the fast started in uh, medieval Europe, you only got one meal a day for those forty days, except for Sundays when you could have normal eating patterns. But you got one meal a day. It was usually eaten toward late afternoon or early evening, and it couldn't contain meat or fish or any animal products. So basically, you went vegan um, during during Lent, and uh, it's, that's a pretty harsh fast, you know. If you think about it, and it really limits what you can eat, and only, you only eat once a day. On Ash Wednesday, the ashes were applied. Ashes in the ancient world have have always been a symbol of desolation, uh, of of, uh, of mourning. And so the ancient peoples, when they lost someone or they went into a time of mourning, they would heap ashes on their head, cover themselves with ashes, and they would wear sackcloth, which is a really rough, coarse material that would keep them in you know, discomfort. And it was a sign of their desolation, a sign of their remorse. And so that was then ported over into understanding that Ash Wednesday was the beginning of this time of remorse for our sinfulness, for the things that we that are separating us from God as the theology understood it at the time. And uh, the ashes come from the burning of the previous year's palm fronds from Palm Sunday. They're blessed by the priest and then they're applied. Initially, they were actually poured on your head. So aren't you glad we stopped that practice? And then they started to draw the cross on the forehead from the ashes. But it's the same idea. It's the, it's the, the remembrance 
that uh, and in fact even what the what the priest would say to you as he's drawing the cross on your forehead would be from dust you have come and from dust you will return from the from the book of Genesis until Vatican II and then it was repent and believe the gospel from Mark 115 but the idea is the same when when Jesus comes and says you know the waiting is over the kingdom is here repent and believe the gospel in Mark 115 he has just come out of the wilderness it is the first line that he says when he returns from his wilderness experience, that 40-day experience of desolation. And so all of this symbolism, all of this scripture, all of this liturgy comes together to try to reinforce the point of what is going on, that there needs to be a preparation before the rebirth. And as we approach Resurrection Day, as we approach Easter, what are we doing internally to prepare ourselves? Originally, this 40-day period that was meant to mirror Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness was the preparation for baptism. So when you were just baptized into the new faith, you spent a 40-day time in preparation that looked like Lent to try to clear that space, to try to purge yourself of of thoughts and, and behaviors and actions that were counterproductive, that were antithetical to the life that you were entering. When you came up out of the waters of baptism, you were, you were reborn. You were resurrected. It was like coming out of the belly of the whale or coming out of the tomb and coming up again into this new life. And we needed to have the descent before we can have the ascent. And this time, this preparation for, bat- for baptism, and then it made total sense to just port it over liturgically for the community as preparation for the new life of Easter. On Resurrection Day. So Jesus is in the wilderness. If you want to think about this, why the wilderness? Why was suffering such a main part of it? Did it have to be wilderness? Did it have to be suffering in order for Jesus to go through what he went through? In order for us to go through what we have gone through? Is it just suffering for its own sake? Does that somehow bring us closer to God just to go through some sort of discomfort or some sort of agony, some sort of physical exhaustion? Or was it pointing toward a deeper purpose? Was it a means to an end? Was it a tool that was going someplace else? And of course, in Jesus' life, in the way that he experienced his wilderness time, that's exactly what it was. But as it was placed liturgically into the calendar, and over time, the church itself and the people lost their connection with this deeper purpose. And so Lent just became this time of self-denial. It became this time of deprivation. Almost as if, if we deny ourselves now, if we make ourselves uncomfortable now, if we, you know, even create this exhaustion and this agony for ourselves now, somehow God is going to reimburse us. Somehow God is going to reward us. Somehow God is going to repay us. And that became the more superstitious look at what was going on in the liturgical calendar. But Jesus was always pointing to something deeper. It wasn't suffering for suffering's sake. It was suffering to move into a new space. If you think about it, Jesus going into the wilderness was like a sensory deprivation. Let's let's read it right here, Mark 19. I'm sorry, Mark 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. 
Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Immediately, immediately, the spirit impelled him. That's a really strong word in the Greek. Impelled him. There's there's force behind it. There's almost violence behind it. He was impelled. He was forced. He was goaded, you know, to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into the Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, "The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel." Yeah, something going on? Well, that's a good thing to do. Yeah. Never mind me. I'm just uh, talking here. Okay, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, boy. So Mark gives us this very short and sparse account, but we get a lot more detail in uh, Matthew and in Luke. So if you take a look at at Matthew 4, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command (laughs) command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and began to minister to him. This is the model that Jesus' life preserved in the scriptures is giving us. It wasn't fasting for fasting's sake. It wasn't deprivation for deprivation's sake. Jesus goes out away from all the distractions of his normal familiar life. He leaves all the cares that that have characterized his days for as long as he's been alive. All the family concerns, all the business, everything he's doing, and goes out into a place that offers none of those distractions offers no noise, offers really nothing for the senses to land on. In order for him to strip away more and more of all the things that have been piled up in his life, and I don't know if this is sounding strange to you being that I'm talking about Jesus, but the scriptures tell us he was a man like every one of us. He went through everything that we go through. He had to go through the purging process. He had to go through the stripping away of ego. And we've talked about that so many times, the egoic mind. To starve that out, to let that fall. And to work through all of the the obsessive-compulsive drives that each one of us as human beings have got to face. 
Henry Nouwen is brilliant at this in The Way of the Heart, where he characterizes the three temptations of Jesus in the wilderness as the drive to be relevant, the drive to be powerful, and the drive to be spectacular. And don't we all want that? I mean, more than anything else, doesn't that characterize our sense of meaning and purpose to be relevant, to be powerful, and to be spectacular? If you could turn stones into bread... How much more relevant could you be in your community, in your family, and in your own life? If you controlled all the kingdoms of the world, if you could even control the way your job went, if you control your family, if you control any other people, wouldn't you be powerful? And if you were celebrated and held up as above head and shoulders above everyone else, you would be spectacular. You would leave that legacy. You would be somebody. These are all the, the drives we all have because deep inside there's that sense of insecurity, deep inside that sense of not knowing if we're adequate, if we're good enough. All of this has to be purged. We said over the last two Sundays, when Frank spoke and when I spoke, we're talking about this idea of dualistic thinking as opposed to unitive thinking. And the main idea or concept that I hope that got across to you is that not that dualistic thinking is bad and unitive thinking is good. Because we just set up another diametrically opposed conundrum for ourselves. If you think about your mind, your egoic mind, all it does, as we talked about last week, is differentiate. It can find edges. It can distinguish this from that, us from them. It can put things in categories and into boxes. And we absolutely need to do that in order to survive. If you think about it, your egoic mind is your interface with the outside world. You all know how to use a computer, right? you got your CPU, your central processing unit. It usually sits in a box on the ground. And then you got the other CPU, which is in your noodle, this one right here, right? How do you get this CPU to talk to that CPU? Well, you have an interface. It's called a GUI, a graphic user interface. It, it's displayed on your screen. And you've got input devices, your keyboard and your mouse. And using those... This CPU can talk to that CPU through the virtual reality of this graphic interface. We go through life in exactly the same way. Who we really are, this deep self, this this sometimes called a watcher, uses the egoic mind as the interface between it and the physical world around us. It's absolutely essential that we are able to differentiate, make those distinctions, do everything that the mind does, talk to us, plan for the future, look at the past and learn from it, all the things the mind does. The only problem becomes is if we identify with it, and we all identify with it. It becomes our definition. It becomes who we are. And then it becomes a block between us and absolutely being able to see ultimate reality, see the truth that is right in front of us. When Jesus goes out into the wilderness, he is starving that out. He is thinning out the distractions. He is no longer listening to the voice in his head as much as he is just being there. And when he learns how to do that, he goes back to the community again. But now he knows how to balance He uses the tool for what it is. He uses the egoic mind for what it is, the interface between him and his community, the words that he uses to teach. 
but he knows who he is when he says that I and the Father are one. He has now experienced that truth. He experienced that reality, and he carries it around with him like the atmosphere he breathes that an astronaut would take up in their pressure suit. This is the means to the end. It's not fasting and suffering and depriving for its own sake. It's doing those things in order to find out what is really underneath the surface of things. Who are we really? When we take all those things away, because that's what happens at death, all those things go away. Death is the death of the egoic mind. And then who are we? If we have a sense of who we are earlier, in other words, if we go through the little deaths that Jesus is talking about, picking up your cross and following me, lose your life so that you can find it, what do you think he's talking about? He's talking about what he experienced in the wilderness. He's talking about what we can experience if we go through the same shape of the journey. And that's what Lent is all about. That is what's going on. But we've lost the practice. We've lost the meaning. And so we no longer know exactly why we're doing the things that we did. And so it becomes this more superstitious sort of process. I'll do this and then God will do that. And so we've lost what needs to really happen. The liturgy and the culture around it no longer holds our community together and teaches us these deeper truths. What we want to do is try to get back to that. Can we get back to what really binds us together in terms of our faith and our faith experience. How can we reinstitute this season of Lent? Maybe corporately between us, if we can be kind of accountability partners and reinforce this as a group. But most importantly, what can you do when nobody else is watching to reinstitute what this 40-day period is supposed to be about? I wanted to read you just a little article that I thought was really great. And it's by a a writer who is up in years, at least at the time that he wrote this. He calls it withering into the truth. Just think about that for a second. Withering into the truth. He's 78 years old when he wrote this. Withering into the truth. Sounds negative, but first thing he does is quote William Butler Yeats. The leaves are many, the root is one. Through all the lying days of my youth, Use. Through all the lying days of my youth, I swayed my leaves and flowers in the sun. Now may I wither into the truth. In a few days, I'll turn 78. When friends say they don't know what to give me for my birthday, I always respond with the same tired old joke they've heard from me before, which causes them to sigh and roll their eyes and change the subject. Here's a perk that comes with age. Repeat yourself so often that folks think you're getting dotty when in fact you're fending off unwanted conversation. Question, what do you give a man who has everything? Answer, penicillin. Take a minute. I don't need gifts of a material nature, but I do need to remember a few things I've learned during my nearly eight decades on earth. The Yeats poem at the head of this column names something I don't want to forget. Actively embracing aging gives me a chance to move beyond the lying days of my youth and to wither into the truth. If I resist the temptation to Botox my withering, my youthful lies weren't intentional. I just didn't know enough about myself and the world and the relation of the two to tell the truth. So what I said on those subjects came from my ego 
a notorious liar. Coming to terms with the sole truth of who I am, of my complex and often confusing mix of darkness and light, has required my ego to shrivel up. Nothing shrivels a person better than age. That's what all those wrinkles are about. Whatever truthfulness I've achieved on this score comes not from a spiritual practice, but from having my ego so broken down and composted by life. Don't you love that? Composted by life. That eventually I had to yield and say, okay, I get it. I'm way less than perfect. I envy folks who come to personal truth via spiritual discipline. I call them contemplatives by intention. Me, I'm a contemplative by catastrophe. I love that. Contemplative by catastrophe. What he's saying is, because he didn't institute a Lenten experience in his life, because he didn't voluntarily strip away, descend into the abyss, go into that place of sensory deprivation, shrivel up his ego consciously, intentionally, he had to wait until life did it for him, and life will do it for you. Just look in the mirror after a certain age. It starts happening to you, whether you like it or not, or ever thought it was going to happen to you or not. And all the things that you have counted on, all the things that you've relied on, all the things that have made you who you think you are, one by one, they start falling away. If you don't do it intentionally, life will do it by catastrophe. Whether it feels like catastrophe or not, you will eventually understand how these things have been stripped away. And then what are you going to do with that knowledge? Who are you then when all the things that you used to do, maybe even just walking up the stairs without one of those lifts, is, is changed your perception of yourself? We want to be contemplatives by intention. We want to voluntarily put these practices into place. And this Lent is a perfect time for us to do that. To see Lent for what it always has been for 2,000 years of church history what the shape of the journey has been from time immemorial and to put that in place so that we can start to get to a place where we understand who we really are. So we can say with Jesus, I and the Father are one. We can say with Jesus, I have moved past these primal drives, obsessive compulsive drives in my life and I am now a person who can stand anywhere, anytime and be present enough to make a choice that is going to be the best possible choice for everyone who's in my blast zone. I can do that. How many of us can do that? This is why when Jesus came back from the wilderness, he just blew the people away. His, his own village mates. Isn't this Mary and Joseph's son? Aren't his brothers and sisters right there? Who is this guy? Kind of like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Who are those guys? Who is this guy? There was something completely different. When Moses came down from his 40 days on Mount Sinai and his hair was whitened by what he had seen of the living God. Who is this guy? We want to be able to come back into our families and come back into our homes. And people say, who is this person? Wow. I think I want to find out more about what's going on here. This is what contemplative by intention is all about. This is what Lent is all about. If we will simply do it. How do we do it? 
Well, you can do it two ways, offline and online. Offline, carve out some time. If you don't already, carve out some time, half an hour in the morning, maybe a half an hour before you go to bed, and just sit. Maybe you can start to practice more silence. Turn off the radio, turn off the TV, sit, read something devotionally, maybe pray, whatever you want to pray in words, and then let that sink into silence and just be. Meditation, if you meditate, centering prayer, if you do that, or just sit and watch the dog sleep. It really doesn't matter as long as you allow yourself to be completely present and to step away from that constant stream of thoughts that orders your life and defines you. Start to feel the separation from that. Feel the person inside that remains, even when the thoughts start to dissipate. Offline, carved out time for that. However that works in your life. Online, practice mindfulness. In your bulletins today, hopefully they got the mindfulness exercises. Take a look at that on your own. Read through them. Practice them in some way. It is amazing what happens if you spend your day just noticing the things around you, looking right into the eyes of the person you're talking to, and letting them see that someone is actually listening. Be listening. Care about what people say. And when you realize your mind has left the building, bring it back in whatever way that you can. Just feel your body in its space. Come back to your breathing. Come back to your sacred word if you do centering prayer. But make this intentional. Every single day of Lent, you can skip Sundays if you want to, but every single day of Lent, don't skip the Sundays because we already lost six days in the rear view. So practice this and consciously realize what you're doing. Fasting would be a good idea too. It's another way of just bringing your body consciousness back to the present moment. That rumbling in your stomach grounds you. It reminds you you're here. You're a physical person. You know, It's not deprivation for deprivation's sake. It's all about getting to this place. So without leaving your family, without leaving your job, without leaving the state, the time zone, you can practice this in place. You can go out into an internal wilderness that is cleared of so many of these distractions that allows you to start to see the truth of who you really are. Because at the end of this is the coming up out of the waters, is the understanding of new life, is Jesus coming out of the tomb into a new life that is then experienced for 40 days on the earth. There's that 40 again. This is what the symbolism, this is what the liturgy, this is what the church and, and millions, billions of adherents over the millennia have trying to show us about how we can live our lives with the intentionality that will take us where we really want to go. Rainer Maria Rilke wrote, The only journey is the one within. Absolutely true. Jesus said, don't go looking for the kingdom out there someplace. You won't find it by observation. The kingdom is within. It's in the midst. You're in the thick of it right now, whether you know it or not. But your job as a follower of mine is to know it. And the only way you're going to do that is follow the shape of this journey. So if we let Lent do this for us, Lent can quiet us down. Lent can take us through this shape. Lent can help us to dissipate all the things, distractions that we need to be prepared for what's coming. And so the challenge is, will you do it? 
Will you take this time every day to practice something? It doesn't really matter what it is, as long as you know what the goal is. To have an internal stillness that allows you just to be. And see where that takes you. Don't worry about where it takes you. Just show up intentionally to the practice and see where you end up. Will you do it? I will if you will. Let's use this Lent sacredly and see where we are by the time Jesus is rising from the, from the tomb. It could be amazing. Let's pray. So many gifts, Father. So much instruction. So many lives. All pointing in the same direction if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. So help us with that. Help us to overcome whatever inertia, whatever resistance we have to trying something different over this Lenten season. To see where it will take us. To see how it can connect us to you. And how we can bring this new insight that we want so badly with each other and with you. So guide us, Father, as you always do. Show us the way and help us to just follow it day by day. Father, we love you. And we know that you loved us first, which is the only way that we can love at all. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand.